Hello, and welcome to Zoom with Zarni. Uh, today is Friday, February 4th, and I'm very happy to have with me my guest today, uh, SU professor Tom Keck, old time friend of the program, one of our most frequent guests. He's a SU political scientist, but most importantly, he is our resident expert on the Supreme Court of the United States. And uh, we were going to talk to him anyways this week to talk about Supreme Court reform uh, that has been on uh, President Biden's agenda. But of course, with the uh, retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, it becomes even more important to talk to Mr. Keck. Um, he gives us an incredible uh, background into Justice Breyer's career. Uh, the moment that we are in with the uh, on the eve of uh, picking uh, someone, uh, a, the first woman SCOTUS, uh, a woman, black woman SCOTUS uh, nominee coming from President Biden as promised sometime shortly, we imagine. Um, and uh, we talk about the precedent that that sends, uh, sets to the court, some of the leading contenders, and also, uh, you know, some of the hypocritical stances that we see from our Republican senators regarding this uh, moment that we are in. Uh, and I think uh, I think you'll enjoy. Uh, as you know, New York uh, State Redistricting came into focus this week uh, with the failure of the Independent Redistricting Commission, and I use independent in quotes. Uh, the, the New York State Legislature took over the redistricting process and as of the taping of this program has passed both the Congressional, Senate, and Assembly maps uh, so those, all of those maps have been passed by both houses in the Assembly and Senate. It's of note that the state maps actually got some Republican support. About a third of the Republican caucus in the New York State Assembly uh, supported uh, these maps. So it is a bipartisan map. Uh, but uh, these maps have been passed. We're waiting the governor's signature as of the taping. Uh, the bills have been delivered to the governor, which means that she has 10 days to sign it, but nobody believes she'll take that long. We think maybe she'll sign it uh, tonight, but maybe by the time this airs, it will be signed. So, uh, and then what will happen then is that uh, boards of elections throughout the state will redraw our election districts to fit the new lines and try to get ready by February 21st, which is less than three weeks away, um, to be able to populate our fields and uh, have new election districts for um, uh, for our uh, people to walk petitions in starting March 1st. So a lot of work to get done. We may have some you know long overtime uh, to get it done as well. So uh, that that is what's going to go on here in uh, New York State. Uh, come uh, next, uh, um, yeah, there may be a legal challenge to this that may delay everything as well. The Republicans have threatened that. We'll see if they actually file something uh, or if they wait until after this election and file something, which is possible, by the way. You can wait until after the election to, um, it just does not need to be filed this year. It could be filed next year and uh, be in effect for 2024. Uh, if the court decides to step in, the court could decide that they can't, they don't have time to step in this year because it's so close to the beginning of petitions that they may decide uh, to step in, you know, if they want to step in at all uh, next year and get ready for 2024. 
those are all uh, possibilities. Speaking of redistricting and gerrymandering, uh, the Onondaga County Legislative Caucus, uh, the Democratic Caucus has announced that they are going forward with a uh, lawsuit and they announced uh, the Onondaga County Democratic Committee today uh, uh, announced a, uh, a uh, Act Blue uh, funding link for that because this is going to be an expensive lawsuit and uh, they're looking for donations to help uh, fund this lawsuit to fight the county legislative maps that were hastily and I think illegally drawn uh, for uh, in, over the last couple of months. Um, so if you're interested in that, uh, check out the show links and we will uh, have that on there or go to the Onondaga County Democratic Committee Facebook page, Twitter page, social pages, or the Onondaga County Ledge Democratic Caucus pages. And I'm sure uh, you'll see those links there as well. Um, and uh, there are, uh, you know, there are going to be tons of forces against uh, this lawsuit, including the full multi-billion dollar budget that the uh, county legislature, county uh, um, government has will be defending this. So uh, every little bit helps to bring forth experts that will uh, fight this map uh, if you're so inclined. Uh, and finally, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, February and Zoom and Zarni is uh, in full uh, gear here talking to democracy experts. But starting in April, we will start having our candidate in, uh, interviews for people running for office this year. Uh, it's uh, the, one of the reasons I'm waiting till then is I need to see which candidates are doing primaries. I do not uh, offer interviews for primaries because I tr stay neutral for all primaries and uh, I will uh, let those primaries uh, play out. But after, uh, there will be races where there are no primaries and I'll get the Democrats on here uh, so you can see about that. Um, and, uh, and, and my wonky Wednesdays are in full bloom. Uh, this last week, I did started on redistricting. I uh, took the lines that were fresh off the presses and did an analysis for the congressional and Senate maps that are now in Onondaga County uh, that have been passed today. And next week, I'll do the assembly, and uh, then we'll uh, continue to do uh, you know fun uh, wonky stuff for uh, those as well. So enjoy my interview with Tom Keck, SU. Uh, political science professor, expert on the Supreme Court in the United States, and CNY Solidarity Coalition member. Thank you again, and enjoy the interview. Bye-bye. And I'm happy to have my good friend, Tom Keck, uh, professor for, uh, of uh, political science up at Syracuse University, and uh, one of the leading members of the CNY Solidarity Coalition and our resident expert on the Supreme Court of the United States. Tom, thank you so much for coming back on Zoom with Zarni. Dustin, always a pleasure. Yes, I think you're my most frequent guest and it's always because we have a lot of great uh, things to talk about. Um, but uh, you know, since RBG's passing, you've been on several times and uh, you know, this is uh, a moment I think that we've been Look, not looking forward to, that's not the right way, but, uh, you know, kind of putting a pin on of when would Stephen Breyer retire 
and who would replace him. And last week, uh, or 10 days ago now, I think, uh, no, last week, it was la- a week ago today, we're recording this on Wednesday, um, Stephen Breyer finally announced that he is stepping down and uh, President Biden will get to name his uh, successor. Uh, what are your thoughts on Justice Breyer and what he brought to the Supreme Court? Sure. Well, he, I mean, he had a long and distinguished career on the court, right? He was appointed by President Clinton. So, you know, that was a while ago, right? Um, we've, gone, we've gone through a lot of different eras of American politics since then. Um, so, you know, he, in, in recent years, he was a um, solid and consistent member of the liberal bloc on the court who have usually been in the, major- in the minority in closely contested, politically divisive cases. Um, he's always had a bit of a, uh, you know, he had a, he had a moderate reputation when Clinton nominated him and he's always had a bit of a sort of kind of consensus building streak on the court of like trying to, um, to, to reach across the aisle, so to speak, and, and where possible, like, like reduce the, the degree of polarization on the court. Um, so, so he's been, he's clearly been a liberal justice, um, but, but, uh, on certain issues and in certain cases, he, he's joined with the conservatives, um, to try to sort of chart, uh, a, a kind of judicial path, um, uh, more in the middle. Um, yeah. So the, his, uh, you know, the end of his career here on the Supreme court is unlike, I think anything we've seen in modern Supreme court history, this fear over because of his advanced age and because of the nature of the evenly split Senate and uh, the the stark reality that um, uh, you know Judge McConnell or Leader McConnell or Minority Leader McConnell now um, has used his power to block Democrats from uh, putting a Supreme Court justice has led to this weird almost. You know, it was a public campaign to get him to retire before uh, the end of uh, this, before the, the, the end of this next year, before the end of 2022, to give uh, Democrats a chance to replace him. You know, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, th- am I wrong? Is this something that's pretty unprecedented or is there, you know, precedent for this type of public involvement in, in, in this uh, retirement? Oh yeah, there's a long history of of sort of presidents and their allies uh, kind of leaning on justices. Um, LBJ did it for sure. Um, uh, LBJ was probably the most explicit uh, about it, as you might uh, not be surprised to hear. Um, but but yeah, there's a long history of that, and it's you know I I, I mean the the, the the so I can say one thing about Justice Breyer, but then one sort of about the bigger picture first. I, I mean the main thing here is just it calls attention to the fact that our current system of when Supreme Court vacancies occur is a terrible system, right? Either they just die in office, which is both tragic and sudden and unpredictable and kind of random, or 
they strategically time their retirements, right, to coincide with a president of their party. So I'm, I, you know, I'm a liberal Democrat. I'm glad Breyer retired now when Biden has the chance to replace him. But it's a system that makes zero sense, right? I mean, it's not a hereditary monarchy. Like, why do the justices themselves get to decide who replaces them? If you were designing it from scratch, I don't think anybody would do it that way. And no other democratic country does it that way. But that's the system we've got. We all know what happened with Justice Ginsburg, right? She, um, she declined some urgings to retire when Obama was in office. Um, and she thought Hillary Clinton was gonna be the next president, right? So she was still, she felt she was still in good enough health to keep going for a little while more. And I, I you know, this is just speculation, but I think she was looking forward to the first woman president appointing her successor. Um, and that, of course, backfired, right? And Trump won the 2016 election, and then Ginsburg was unable to hang on for four more years. So, so given that very recent history, there was obviously a lot of pressure on Justice Breyer not to repeat that mistake, right? We don't know what's going to happen in the next presidential election, and, and why, why would you hang on? He's 83 years old. Like, why would you try to hang on longer? So he, he had not said anything publicly until last week about when he was going to step down, so there was a lot of hand-wringing about it. Um, but but I do think it's the right thing to do, right? I mean, he's he's old. He's been there a long time. He's had a distinguished career of public service, um, and it's it, it's time it's time for some new blood. Yeah. So, and we'll kind of get to that uh, the idea of SCOTUS reform because I you know we've talked about that several times on our uh, program here. But um, you know now now that we're headed into this. Uh, you know, nomination fight, or will it be a fight? We're not really sure. Well, there is this promise by then candidate Biden, uh, who, which he has confirmed he would continue, is to put a black woman on the on the court, the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. And, you know, hypocritically or not, the, the Republican senators seem to, you know, say that this is a uh, a rushed process, which is hilarious, uh, but uh, just, you know, the, and that maybe, uh, you know, this kind of uh, promise is unprecedented. And I know it's not, but you know, can you comment on that? Is the promise of a particular gender uh, precedented or unprecedented or even race precedent or unprecedented in American history for a Supreme Court nominee? Yeah, there's lots of precedent for it, and it's pretty common. And, and, and you know, the Republican senators complaining are being disingenuous because just two years ago, when Amy Coney Barrett um, was nominated by President Trump, all of those same senators made quite explicit and open, like, identity-based appeals in support of Amy Coney Barrett. They talked at length about how it was going to be great to have a Christian mom on the court, right? I mean, that, how is that any different, right? Um, uh, they talked about her qualifications as a judge too, as we will with whoever Biden nominates. Um, but they made they made identity appeals, identity based appeals, over and over again. Um, we know that Ronald Reagan, when he was running for president in 1980, promised to appoint the court's first um, woman, um, and and appointed Sandra Day O'Connor in 1981. Um, and, and really, if you look at the whole history of the court. Um, it, it, this is, this has been a recurring pattern, right? I mean, it's not that, you know, the, the courts, the, the justices of the Supreme Court have been remarkably undiverse 
on the standards that we that many of us care about nowadays, right? There's been 115 justices and 108 of them have been white men, yeah. right? So that, that that's a pretty poor record of reflecting what the American public really looks like. Um, but still, like throughout the court's history, there's been repeated like promises like, oh, we need a Southerner on the court. Um, we need a Catholic on the court. We need a Jew on the court, right? We need um, uh, 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 we need more Westerners on the court, right? In the mid 20th century, as as the country expanded all the way to the Pacific, um, uh, so so that that's none of that is new, right? Je um, presidents and their supporters have regularly, not with every single vacancy, but regularly and repeatedly. Um, uh, for obvious electoral reasons, right? They've, they've made sort of demographic or identity-based promises to various constituencies uh, uh, to get them represented on the court. And I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like why, you know, the Supreme Court is an important governmental institution. Uh, why wouldn't we want it to be broadly reflective of the American people? Yeah, and you know, thinking back to uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall, who was the first first uh, uh, justice of color that was uh, nominated back in nineteen sixty-seven, is there parallels between this nomination uh, and the way Biden's handling it, and the way LBJ handled that nomination, or was that more of a surprise when it happened? Um, that one was not a total surprise. He had nominated Thurgood Marshall um, to be U.S. Solicitor General first uh, as a kind of stepping stone um, to, a, to an expected appointment to the court. Um, so it was not out of the blue. Um, I don't recall that LBJ promised to do that on the campaign trail. So that was different for Biden. Um, the, the most direct precedent there, I think, is, is Reagan's promise in 1980 to appoint a woman. Um, yeah, so it so there's some parallels. Um. So, you know, let's let's talk about the not the p potential nominees. I, I think uh, uh, the one name that has been floated the most is, is uh, uh, Jenny Brown Jackson, uh, you know, who serves on the Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., recently confirmed, confirmed with Republican votes just earlier this year to, to sit on that that bench. Um, but I know there's a few others. Do you want to, you know, talk about who some of these candidates might be and what and and what you who you feel might be uh, leading? Uh, I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. We'll find out shortly. But uh, what are your sure. thoughts? I mean, about I, I mean, I think there's three, there, there's three sitting judges whose names have consistently been floated, right? And at, and and if you had to. Um, you know, if, if, if you were, if you were a bookie or whatever, and trying, you know, trying to, trying to put the money on it, like, uh, which, I think, which we will Brad not Jackson, do, we're not going to run a betting ring right now. <laughs> yeah, which we will not do, right, but, 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 but I think Katanji Brown-Jackson is, is, and has been the leading candidate in some respects, like she, as you say, she was an early appointment of Biden's to the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, which is often described as the second most important court in the country, and which has often been a stepping stone to service um, on the on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Chief Justice Roberts served first on the on the DC Circuit, as did Clarence Thomas, as did Justice Scalia, um, and uh, so so at the time. When, and in fact, so if you go back to the, the very first weeks of, um, 
Biden's administration, in fact, even before he was sworn in, when he announced that Merrick Garland would be his nominee as attorney general, that meant that once Merrick Garland got confirmed as attorney general, he would resign his seat on the D.C. Circuit, which would open up a spot for Ketanji Brown Jackson, right? Like, so her name was being floated like right away as a nominee to the D.C. Circuit. And a widespread expectation even then was that she would clearly be on a short list for future Supreme Court vacancies. Um, the other two names that have been um, floated the most are um, Leandra Kruger, who's a sitting judge on the California Supreme Court um, and worked in the Obama administration, right? She was in the Justice Department um, during the Obama administration. And then uh, Michelle Childs, who is a federal trial judge in South Carolina and has currently been nominated to the DC Circuit, although that was just, um, I believe, in December, and that nomination is still pending. So, um, so all three of them are sitting judges. They they all have, um, they're all well qualified to serve on the Supreme Court. Um, Katanji Brown Jackson and Leandra Kruger have the sort of more conventional, um, like kind of Ivy League um, elite legal credentials. Um, one of the reasons that Representative Clyburn has been uh, pushing for Michelle Childs is she's got more of a blue collar background, right? She did not go to Ivy League um, schools. Uh, she went to school in Florida and South Carolina. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it, it's, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're all well qualified to serve on the court. Um, uh, they all, I think, have been vetted recently or are known to the administration, right? Because uh, 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 Childs was just recently nominated to the D.C. Circuit. Um, Jackson was nominated to the D.C. Circuit last year. Kruger worked in the Obama administration, right? So, um, so hopefully none of them have, you know, major skeletons in the closet or anything. I think they're pretty well-known uh, figures. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so so I don't know which one it's going to be. I think those are the leading candidates. And, and as we always see in these situations, there's a variety of other names that have been floated, and we could talk some about them. But I think most of that is just a signal to the media and to um, various constituencies in the partisan coalition. Like, oh, yeah, we're considering your person, too. You know, so like Sherilyn Eiffel, um, uh, formerly of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, would be amazing. Um, and her name has been floated, but, but I don't. I, I, I haven't seen anything to lead me to believe that, that that's a real possibility. It would be great if it is, but but I think it's likely to be one of the sitting judges. So, you know, and I, I also noted that, you know, John Brown Jackson is uh, has a public or is a defense lawyer, is uh, has defense, uh, um, you know, a background. And that's something that is rare on the Supreme Court as well. Um, so. What, uh, what you know, we're coming on this nomination in a 50-50 Senate where we have Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema who have bucked uh, President Biden's uh, push for voting rights and the Build Back Better. And recent news of Senator Ben Ray Luan, who we, you know, wish all the well, uh, um, who uh, had a stroke. At age 49, uh, he's my age, uh, had a stroke and is going to recover. They say he's going to recover. He'll be back in six weeks. But with a 50-50 Senate, we can't lose any uh, vote. And with, uh, you know, Diane Feinstein's 84, uh, you know, there is this 
huge uh, push to get this done pretty quickly and not have a, a long nomination fight. I think uh, they were talking about the Amy Conan Barrett uh, timeline of 27 days. And I think with uh, Senator Luan's recent illness, I think that's out the window. But, uh, you know, wh what are your thoughts on that? I mean, there's a lot of and and, and I and we got to put this out there. It's obviously hypocritical. It's obvious um, that uh, you know the Republicans put this out, put these statements out there, ignoring their own history. But you know, what it, are there precedents for quick, uh, you know, nomination uh, process uh, that is not Amy Coney Barrett's rush before the election? Yeah, I mean, historically, there's lots of precedents. I mean, a Supreme Court justice used to get uh, confirmed on voice votes in the Senate. They didn't even hold hearings. Um, so, but in recent decades, it's typically been a longer, more drawn out process with time for um, senators of both parties to sort of fully get a chance to know the candidates. Um, uh, they hold individual one-on meetings with every member of the Senate who wants one. Um, they conduct background checks and the like. Um, that process was abbreviated in Brett Kavanaugh's case, where there were um, credible allegations of sexual assault that emerged, and 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 the uh, um, timeline and uh, um, uh, 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 was curtailed, right? So that Democrats were calling for an independent FBI investigation, which never happened. Um, and then it was cut even more short in Amy Coney Barrett's case because of the impending election. Um, so. Uh, so, you know, the fact is that that um, uh, Democrats are not in a huge rush here, right? I mean, there's the concern with Senator Lujan and other elderly senators, and that is one reason why there had been a lot of pressure on Breyer to step down sooner rather than later, because you never know um, when the Dems could lose their majority, even mid-session. Uh, but, but in turn, but so leaving aside the health of the senators for a second, there, there's just not a huge rush, right? I mean, they need, you know, Breyer said he wants um, to step down at the end of the term, assuming that his successor is confirmed by then. And so that's late June or early July. Um, and then the, the, the justice's sort of important role on the court doesn't even really start till the following fall because the court goes on recess throughout the summer. Um, so there's plenty of time in that sense. Um, uh, but again, with a bare congressional majority, um, you know, and one of your senators now recovering um, back at home, um, that that throws some some rents throws throws a wrench into the plans. You also mentioned Mansion and Cinema. So with regards to them, you know, we all know what they've done on the voting rights bill and on Build Back Better. Um, but you know, Biden nominated a lot of judges last year, and Mansion and Cinema voted for every single one of them. Right? There's not a single Biden judicial nominee. That Mansion and Cinema have tried to obstruct, and so, so far as we know, as of now, Mansion and Cinema have treated judicial nominations differently than they have treated controversial legislation. Um, that could always change, you know. If Mansion gets something in his mind about why he doesn't like a particular nominee, it could change. But I, I don't, I don't expect that to happen, and I'm sure the Biden White House is floating their candidates by Manchin and Cinema and, and other members of the caucus. And, and so assuming that Manchin and Cinema are on board, I think it is likely, not definite for sure, but likely 
that at least a handful of Republicans vote for the nominee as well. I don't know if the Republicans would cast the deciding vote for the nominee, but assuming that Manchin and Cinema and the full Democratic caucus is on board, you know, um, Collins and Murkowski and Lindsey Graham all voted for Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation to the DC Circuit last year, right? And so, you know, I think they might well do that again. Um, uh, so hopefully, Senator Lujan recovers smoothly and he gets back in time to cast his vote in, in normal order. Hopefully Manchin and Cinema don't throw any last minute uh, wrenches into the works. And hopefully at least a handful of Republicans even prove willing to support the nominee. Um, all of those are unknowns for now, but I don't think there's any reason for, for, for panic or anything on the Democrat side. I, I think the process will work its way through. So, when, you know, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm surprised at the moment we're in. I always wonder, you know, you know, if there is a, a different force out there, you know, leaving us to these things. Because in the middle of talking about voting rights that have failed, and in the middle of probable uh, major attack on Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, President Biden is about to nominate a liberal Black female justice, which will create a um, a, a three member female wing, a liberal wing of the court that will, uh, you know, uh, stand up for these rights. But it's not going to change the ideological bent of this court. The, the, and and so I've I thought, oh well, this will be an opportunity for the Republicans to show, oh hey, uh, you know you know, let's, let's give it a pass. Let's not have a lot of uh, vitriol out there, but immediately Senator Collins is on, uh, on the air saying it's a rushed process. You have, of course, you have the yahoos like Senator Hawley and Senator Cruz, uh, you know, being just totally hypocritical, but you know, there's others like um, Senator Kennedy who said that he wants, when talking about a possible black justice, his first immediate comment was he wants somebody who knows a law book and the difference between a law book and a J. Crew catalog. Well, of course, everybody that Biden's going to nominate is qualified, you know, and to insinuate they're not just because it's a, a black woman justice is just ridiculous. You know, is this, you know, is this talk that's going to die down or is this just going to continue like this? I mean, uh, why are why are the Republicans continuing to fight when it's not going to change the ideological bent of this court? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, so there's, there's questions about the ridiculous comments from Republican senators. And then there's the question about, like, how, how much they're actually going to try to slow down or obstruct things. You know, the ridiculous comments are to be expected, right? There's a lot of um, racially regressive members of the Republican caucus in the U.S. Senate. And so Ken Kennedy's comment today was ridiculous. Um, but but that kind of stuff was bound to happen, right? I mean, it was inevitable. And there's been, you know, outside the Senate, there's been comments and social media postings from various conservative lawyers and, and scholars and the like, you know, um, you know, preemptively sort of, you know, and in a, in a apparently racist or racially tinged fashion, right? Like, you know, calling into the question the, the qualifications of the nominee who we don't even have a nominee yet. And, and again, the names who have been most often floated are very distinguished judges who are perfectly well qualified to serve on the Supreme Court. There's no question whatsoever about that. So, so those comments are unfortunate and they 
were unfortunately to be expected, and we can unfortunately expect to see and hear more of them um, uh, once we have a nominee. Um, I still think it's an open question, you know, what, how, how much Republicans try to slow down or obstruct things, right? As you say, that the nominee will have no immediate short-term impact on the balance of power on the court, which remains controlled by a six-justice conservative majority. And so um, it, 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 it's, not, it, it's not clear to me that, uh, that a substantial portion of the Republican caucus in the U.S. Senate will conclude that it's in their best interest to have an open and public fight with the first African-American woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court in the midst of a midterm election year. I, I think some of them will just, will, will let it pass, but, but I, who, who knows, right? I mean, who knows, right? What they, they, you know, if they smell blood in the water or they see something that they see as a weakness, you know, they, they, they might go all out and, and act like they have been acting so often in recent years, but, 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 my my strong impression at the moment is that we will have a successful confirmation um, within a few months of whoever President Biden nominates. Yeah, I I hope so too. I think I, I think that's uh, I I think that's the most likely. I think it's very unlikely they weren't prepared for this moment. I I think whoever they bring out, they've known for a while and have already vetted, and this is not a surprise. And we're going to. You know, we knew that it was probably going to happen, um, and uh, we knew that who Biden, you know, ideally wanted to pick. So, and we have several vetted candidates already. So, I do hope that this will go quickly, and it will be a um, a non acrimonious uh, confirmation process. So, you know, when I originally booked you about a month ago, uh, we were going to talk about the state of uh, Supreme Court reform because uh, the there's been several commission meetings and a report and I don't think we've been able to really talk since then so you in the light of this nomination what is the status of overall reform and and what are some of the things that are coming out of this Biden commission that uh, uh, that you're hopeful that will be uh, enacted so um, just a quick recap for folks. In April of last year, President Biden appointed a pretty high-level commission, lots of distinguished scholars and retired judges and the like, um, to study a variety of reform proposals regarding the Supreme Court of the United States. And he explicitly asked them not to issue recommendations, but instead just to sort of vet and kind of evaluate um, the pros and cons of the various options that are on the table. Um, and it was a, a ideologically diverse commission. There were a number of um, well-known conservative scholars and conservative former judges um, uh, on the commission. So it was politically diverse and, and they held a lot of public meetings that you could attend on Zoom. And I attended a number of them. Um, and then they issued a 300 page report in December um, and then closed up shop. So their work is done. Um, and so uh, that report um, goes through in a series of chapters, a variety of different areas um, where there have been calls for reforming the Supreme Court. Um, and again, it does not make formal recommendations. It said it, it reviews the, the different things that have been proposed by various political officials and scholars and the like. Um, and, and it kind of, you know, carefully like weighs the pros and cons 
uh, of the things that have been proposed. And the commission itself was quite divided, right? And you could see this in their public meetings where they would prepare like a draft of one section of the report, and then they would have a public meeting discussing it. And the members of the commission were, were clearly divided. And so I'll just flag two, two of the sort of chapters in that report um, that are worth uh, continued attention. I, I, the other parts of it are important too, but just for the sake of time. Um, so, so one is about the size of the Supreme Court, right? So the, the, the commission report does a nice job of summarizing um, the history of changes to the size of the Supreme Court. The size is not specified in the constitutional text. Congress changed it seven times throughout the course of the um, 19th century. FDR famously proposed changing it um, during the Great Depression with its court packing plan, which Congress declined to adopt, but mostly because the Supreme Court, after the plan was announced, stopped issuing the obstructionist anti-New Deal decisions that it had repeatedly been issuing, right? So once the court started upholding minimum wage and child labor laws and the Social Security Act and the Wagner Act, uh, then packing the court no longer seemed, seemed as urgent. Um, and so there's a long history of changes to the court size. Um, uh, they've, all, they've all been politically motivated to some extent, for sure, because we're talking about political officials, um, members of Congress who have, who have authority over the court size. But they've also regularly been motivated by, by our, I think, a real genuine and sincere desire to, to reform an institution that at various points in its history has been viewed uh, often for good reason as kind of going off the rails a little bit, right? So that if the court, for whatever reason, starts acting in ways that are inconsistent with the fundamental purposes of our constitutional democracy, then it is incumbent upon the elected branches to try to rein the court back in, right? So, so that's one set of proposals about changing the court size. And, and there's a... Um, there's a there's a there's a variety of different proposals, but there's a bill. The most straightforward bill is the one introduced by Mondaire Jones in the House um, that would just add four new seats to the Supreme Court. Um, incidentally, I was attending a, a, a Zoom candidates forum with the declared congressional candidates, Democratic congressional candidates um, in our district um, just last night. So so Tuesday of this week. Um, a, a forum sponsored by local indivisible groups and all three candidates were asked uh, that Chol Magic wasn't invited yet because they, they planned it right before he announced. But the three candidates who were in attendance um, were all asked about this and they all said they support the, the, the bill that would add four seats to the Supreme Court, right? So it's, it's gone quickly from a fringe idea to a mainstream idea is what I would say. Um, and, and the commission report, keep there, there, there's no votes in the US Congress now to enact that bill but the commission report keeps that in the conversation. Real quickly, just to flag one other set of ideas from the report, there's a whole chapter about um, term limits and the nomination and confirmation process. And this is something where there's actually pretty broad bipartisan agreement to an extent that the process is broken, right? Uh, uh, long before Trump, there were, um, there were repeated and longstanding calls from scholars on both the left and the right for um, getting rid of life tenure on the Supreme Court, uh, um, which, you know, as we were talking about at the top of the hour, uh, ha has, has all kinds of weird um, consequences, right? One of which is that uh, the justices get to time their own retirements and the vacancies and hence choose who's gonna replace them. Um, most other democratic countries that have a court somewhat akin to our Supreme Court, they either have life tenure, but with a mandatory retirement age, 
or they have a fixed, a long, but fixed term, like 12 years, for example. Um, and in either of those situations, the vacancies are regular and predictable, right? In, in our system, the vacancies are irregular and unpredictable. And so you wind up with situations where, you know, like Donald Trump serves one term, loses the popular vote twice, gets impeached twice, but he gets to name three life tenure judges. Barack Obama, you know, gets elected twice, serves eight full years, two full terms, wins the popular vote both times, never gets impeached. And he only gets to name two justices, right? He also had a third vacancy, which they didn't, they didn't give a hearing to. So, so those kinds of um, uh, unequal um, and unpredictable vacancies on the court are a barrier to its democratic responsiveness and they create the possibility of partisan gamesmanship and the like. So there's a whole chapter in the port vetting a variety of different proposals for reducing the length of the justice's terms and regularizing the vacancies. So was any of the reform uh, proposals about ethics reforms? Because there's so many things in the, in the news right now about Justice Thomas's wife, who, um, you know, not only is a very active lobbyist and, uh, you know, seems to uh, be very active in cases that are before the court. Uh, and, uh, and Justice Thomas never recuses himself, but also, I mean, not for nothing, she seems to be tied pretty closely with the insurrectionist movement that happened uh, earlier this year and, and uh, some of the groups that were a part of that. What, was there anything about that or is that something that is still just left to Congress and not done? Yeah, I mean, all of it's left to Congress, but the commission report did, did in fact address that, right? There's a whole chapter devoted to transparency and ethics related issues. Um, you know, another item that was, that's been in the news this week is Justice Gorsuch is making an appearance this week at a Federalist Society event um, yeah. alongside Mike Pence and Ron yeah. DeSantis. And, and, and there's really been a, a, a sort of long stretch of these, right? Alito gave a very partisan speech to the Federalist Society last year, shortly before the election. Um, Amy Coney Barrett made a, shortly after her confirmation, made a public appearance with Mitch McConnell um, at a center in uh, Kentucky named after Senator McConnell. Um, and, and the justices complain when people talk about them as if they're, as if the court is a political institution, but they simultaneously are acting in ways that are obviously going to be perceived as political. And so I really think, you know, I get asked about court reform all the time. Um, and one of the things that I always say is whether the Supreme Court gets reformed or not is largely in the hands of the justices. If they would put their heads down, keep their heads down and act like neutral umpires, like John Roberts said that they're supposed to be just calling balls and strikes, not trying to be the center of attention, um, then uh, just as with the, when the anti-New Deal court stopped striking down New Deal legislation, right, then the wind for reform gets taken out of the sails, right? Um, but if they keep acting in ways that make them sound and look like partisan actors, and if they keep issuing partisan six to three decisions, right, you know, likely reversing Roe versus Wade and overturning affirmative action in university admissions, those are some of the ones coming up, um, that, then the pressure for reform is going to continue to build, right? And it's there's not the votes there to enact any of these reforms right now. Um, but the, but if, if the justices continue to act like partisans, the pressure is going to continue to build. 
So what do you think is going to happen over the next few weeks? So what, what are you, or, or months with this? And um, I mean, is there any way, barring a democratic uh, defection, uh, which I am always concerned about with Senator Sinema, more than Senator Manchin on this, it seems like she is the one that, she's the one that is so underwater in her next uh, election already. The, the polls are just absurd about in Arizona right now about how, you know wh whether she'll lose a primary that she could just defect to the Republican Party at any moment giving McConnell the gavel. Um, what you know what are you what are your thoughts about how how this is going to play out and um, how what what kind of danger are we in? And even after we get by this nomination, is there any chance that this court is going to be changed? anytime soon with this 6-3 hyper-partisan majority or, you know, the hyper-conservative partisan majority that is about to hand down these cases that are really going to remake the fabric of our society. Right. Well, I, I don't know. I can't, you know, I can't predict the future, um, like, uh, uh, is the short answer. But, but, but I, what I do know is that um, the 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 justices in the current court's majority, right? Um, some of them more than others, but all six of them to some extent, right? Have have repeatedly acted in, in ways that that create the appearance that the court is a partisan institution, and and often create the reality that the court is a partisan institution. Um, and I don't see any real evidence that they're gonna stop doing so, right? I mean, they're not all always on the same page with each other. Uh, uh, Gorsuch and Thomas and Alito are often particularly willing to kind of drive the bus off the cliff, right? I mean, they just no holds barred, pushing for an extreme conservative rereading of, of the constitutional text and existing precedents. Um, sometimes Roberts and Barrett and Kavanaugh, you know, are putting the brakes on and trying to slow things down. So, so they're not always 100% on the same page, but the overall trend is pretty clear, right? And I think it's pretty clear that they're going to reverse Roe versus Wade um, in June. Um, I think it's pretty clear that next year they're going to strike down affirmative action in higher ed. Um, they've got some conservative decisions in the pipeline on gun rights and on immigration and on the separation of church and state as well. And, and, and you never really know which of these decisions or which kind of series of decisions might kind of push the public and push democratic elites over the edge. You know, maybe it'll be abortion rights, right? I mean, this is gonna be a pretty stark and blatant example of um, the justices reversing a well-entrenched long-standing 50-year-old line of precedents that have been reaffirmed by the court over and over and over again. Um, and they're just going to toss it in the trash. And, um, you know, that has electoral implications. It has implications for, for how people think about the court. Um, and, and, and maybe it starts to snowball, right? Right now, there's neither enough Democratic support in Congress, given the tiny majorities, nor enough like public focus and attention on the court for major reform to happen, right? 
so it's up to the, so it's up to the justices, right? Like how many extreme partisan conservative decisions do they issue um, between now and June, right? And, 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 and how does the Biden administration react, right? And then of course, it's up to the midterm elections too, because right now with the very tiny majorities in both houses, um, you know, court, court reform is a bridge too far. Um, but do Democrats hold on to both houses by the skin of their teeth in the midterm elections this year? Um, does Biden get reelected to a second term, right? And do Dems retain Congress then? Right, court reform is going to be a long haul, right? FDR did it right after he got reelected in a landslide. He didn't do it in his first term, um, so it, it's going to be a long haul, and 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 it's partly in the hands of the justices, right? Depends what they do. And you know, and not to be too gloom and doom, but uh, this is a pretty young court in, in, in terms. Now that Breyer is leaving, uh, he's the last octogenarian on the court. The next two are uh, Thomas and uh, uh, Alito, who are in their 70s, which, you know, seems old, but not really for the Supreme Court. We, we regularly see people serve uh, into their 80s um, and only leave when they want to, uh, as, you, as you so well noted. So we're looking at a 6-3 majority, no matter what happens with Biden's pick, for you know, the better part of a decade, probably, uh, you know, depending, you know, unless uh, some uh, unforeseen uh, tragedy happens, which we, of course, will never, uh, you know, want. Uh, that's not how we, how we want change. But what, what is, you know, I, I get, as a voting rights advocate, um, I get worried about, uh, now I get worried about cases going to the Supreme Court because I get worried they're going to create precedent that will strike down voting rights. You know, the, they've already gutted the VRA on, with Shelby County, and that was with a 5-4 court. So what's next? Or, you know, what, what are they going to do, uh, you know, next on voting rights? Are they going to make it, you know, some of these voting rights bills that we see with ridiculous... Uh, rules are they going to say yeah states can basically allow modern versions of Jim Crow I, they, these are the kind of things that I get worried about over the next five to ten years and there's nothing we can really do about it right there's there's, there's nothing in the short term we can do about it and it is and it is um, there's plenty of reason to worry right and, and for me I, I've been harping on this all year long right the it, the, the 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 the, the, the court's behavior in voting rights and election law and the democracy reform questions um, is the particular area of the court's work that for me most justifies court reform because the current Supreme Court majority is participating in and enabling and exacerbating the downward spiral of democratic backsliding that we're seeing. Right. And so that that is a cycle that's hard to break without some kind of aggressive and novel reforms to our existing institutions. So the thing that I'm most worried about, and so there's all this other stuff, abortion and gun rights and stuff, that's all bad, too. But 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 um, but but the voting rights thing, like you I'm the same as you. Right. This is this is the part that I that I've been really focused on. And um the, the, the part that worries me the most, so one thing is uh, one thing is crystal clear, right? Which is just that the current court is not gonna play a role 
as kind of safeguarding our democracy, right? They declined to do anything about partisan gerrymandering. They've declined to do anything about voter purges. They've declined to do anything about discriminatory voter ID laws, right? They're just not gonna play that role. Um, but what's even worse is that when blue state legislatures or when Congress, if it can ever get its act together in the Senate, when, when democratic controlled legislative institutions pass laws trying to shore up and strengthen the health of our democracy, the current Supreme Court is likely to strike many of those laws down, right? So it's not just that the court um, declined in the Rucho case a couple of years ago, the court declined itself to do anything to fix partisan gerrymandering. All right, so that so they're not going to fix it for us. So we're trying to fix it in Congress, right? There's legislation pending in Congress, which we can't get the Senate to vote on, um, uh, that would ban partisan gerrymandering in federal elections. Um, but if Congress enacts that, that's going to be challenged on day one in court, and the current Supreme Court might well strike it down, right? And that's really where I think the threat is. But I also think it's where pressure makes a difference, right? Because the court's more likely to do that if nobody's paying attention, right? And, and if the public is closely watching the court and is outraged about its decisions, gutting voting rights and the like, um, and there's credible calls for court reform on the table in Congress, then it at least makes the justices sort of think twice, right? They, they, this is a recurring feature in the court's history where you know some of the court's members really care about the sort of legitimacy and authority of the Supreme Court, and they recognize that if they go too far too fast in one particular partisan direction, then the political branches are likely to respond, and so so they'll back they'll back off a little bit, right? That's what happened during the New Deal, um, and it could happen again. Um, so so yeah, so it it's we we've got a we've got a long. And kind of interlocking uh, um, set of kind of hurdles in front of us um, to try to strengthen and renew American democracy. And the court is one of the barriers. And so, court reform, I always say, has to be part of democracy reform, right? We we need to reform our gerrymandering process. We need to get stop voter suppression, right? We need to make it easier, not harder, for people to vote. Um, but we also need to reform the court because the court is playing a role in all of those dynamics. Yeah, I, I've always been a, an advocate of the 18-year uh, term limit, the, the, a rotating, you know, each uh, presidential term, you get two appointees or, you know, it just something that makes this not about who won the last election, who gets to swing the court, because then it is becoming political. It is that it is no longer the arbiter of truth. It is the arbiter of the whim of the last few elections, and then it takes generations to undo. And that's uh, that's what I'm worried about. Is that this is going to be twelve years of you know constantly things going right for us to un to even get to an even court, <laughs> then uh, to. Uh, um, you know, to, to without any kind of reform in there. And that's just 12 years of more Shelby County and Texas abortion law and whatever other kind of decisions that Citizens United coming our way. You know, it's these decisions that are, are, are ruining our democracy. Um, but, you know, we're getting towards, uh, uh, we're getting towards the end. I always like to uh, 
end this with the question, what haven't we talked about? What, what, are, what is something that you want people to know about uh, that we haven't talked about regarding this, the current situation with the Supreme Court or anything else? Um, so I'm going to say a couple things. Um, uh, so one is um, one area of, of court reform that, that we haven't talked about, but it's just worth flagging because it's another area where the current justices have be, been sort of acting in somewhat unusual ways, and, and it's something that Congress could try to address, right? So the current justices have um, gotten into the habit of making much heavier use of their so-called shadow docket which is the term that scholars use to describe their, their like emergency orders. So when they issue emergency orders in the absence of full briefing and arguments on the usual schedule, that's a, that's a process that's always been in place on the court for obvious reasons, but that they have used dramatically more often in recent years and have been appearing, the scholars who track it have shown, you know, clear patterns that they're using it in disproportionate ways, right? So. Um, uh, uh, um, they've repeatedly used it to um, to block uh, COVID public health orders, especially when they restrict the activities of religious institutions. They've repeatedly used it. Uh, they, they used it throughout um, the election year of 2020 to block emergency election law changes, right, um, that were attempting to make it easier for people to vote in the pandemic. Um, so there's just been, uh, and they've used it in abortion cases, right? Um, uh, and so it, it's, um, it's, it, I, I just feel like it's really like just a recurring set of unforced errors by the court. Like, I don't know why they are doing this. It, it shows just such impatience on the part of the conservative justices to, to use their powers to the hilt, right, to try to achieve conservative results without even waiting for cases to follow the ordinary course of cumbersome legal procedures um, that bring a case to the court in, in regular order. Um, they're not waiting for that, right? They're just reaching out and taking cases before they're ready, and, and, and there's no reason for them to do it. And Congress could reform that if they wanted to, right? Congress could put rules in place in federal law that constrain and guide when the justices can use and abuse those processes. So, so that that's a little bit of like you know inside baseball stuff that that only scholars could maybe care about. Um, but but it, it's important and it's and it's just further evidence that we're dealing with a court that's acting in some pretty un, unfortunately partisan ways, right? Um, then the second thing I would just mention and flag just to sort of tie us back to Justice Breyer um, and the potential replacements for Justice Breyer is I don't I don't know how this is going to play out, but um, but this was already shaping up as a year where the Supreme Court's going to be on the front pages a lot, right? I mean, if they reverse Roe versus Wade in June of a midterm election year, right? That is going to be a very big deal. Um, and, and and now, like not only that, right? But we've got Justice Breyer, you know, retiring after two decades of distinguished service, and we're going to get the first Black woman justice uh, nominated to replace him, and we're going to have a whole nomination and confirmation fight, which always is a lot of headline news and a lot of attention on the court. And so, I am just curious to see. I, I, I genuinely don't know how this is going to play out, but I am curious to see how much this like conjunction of events. First black woman on the court, court reversing Roe versus Wade, et cetera, how much it um, impacts the degree to which Democratic voters 
prioritize the court as an issue. Because in recent decades, right, re really for my whole adult life, Republican voters have always put more weight on the Supreme Court as an issue than Democratic voters have. It, it's just been a recurring feature. You see it in public opinion polls over and over again. Um, and uh, there's, there's, there's no election in recent memory in which the issue of the Supreme Court has been one that has helped Democrats in the election. Um, uh, um, you know, maybe back in 1992, I think is probably the last example where Clinton was helped by the fact that the court came very close to overturning Roe versus Wade in June of 1992. Um, so, so all of that could change at some point. And is this the year that it starts to change, right? I, I mean, is it, are Democratic voters ready to start paying more attention to the Supreme Court and putting more weight on that when they make their decisions in the voting booth. If, if the court overturns Roe versus Wade, do suburban women who, you know, um, jumped ship from the Republican Party during the Trump era, but maybe still voted for Republican members of Congress, right? Like, do those, you know, does that further cement the shift of conservative white suburban women or moderate white suburban women um, into, in, into the Democratic camp? I really don't know, um, but I, I I am hopeful that Democratic voters will will recognize how important the Supreme Court is to the future health of our democracy, and, and we'll put some weight on that. Obviously, we got lots of other things to be concerned about too, right? COVID, um, of course, and the, and you know the economy, and there's plenty of things for voters to be worried about. Um, and it's not it's understandable that the Supreme Court's not always at the top of the list, but but I am hopeful that Democratic voters start at least paying as much attention to it as Republican voters have in recent decades. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, that's, I mean, that's where, <laughs> that's that's the the cause of so much ill of our democracy is the fact that Democratic voters seem to only care about presidential years and presidential politics, rarely about congressional politics, although that has started to change a little bit, but not on how, um, you know, how local politics or uh, judicial nominations, uh, you know, play a role in our everyday life. And, and Republican voters have, you know, they have made their deals with the devils, they have made, they have done what they had to do. And, um, you know, they are reaping the, the rewards of doing so. So it's a, uh, it's definitely something that uh, that is to watch in the future. Well, Tom, thank you so much again for uh, coming on Zoom and Zarni. The camera fell down, uh, but uh, uh, you know, and I get, I want to, um, you know, uh, thank you for always coming on when uh, Supreme Court uh, news seems to break. Uh, you're a wealth of information and a jewel of our uh, Central New York community, and I, uh, people should go follow you on Twitter and follow your. Uh, postings about the Supreme Court because uh, they are where I learn a ton of stuff. Uh, so please, uh, please go do that. And I, I always close the show with uh, my urgent plea to continue to remind you that the, you know, the COVID crisis is still with us. We just saw an article uh, just yesterday or two days ago where we reached a 1,000 milestone in Onondaga County. 1,000 of our neighbors and friends uh, have been lost to this horrible virus. Uh, the masking order is still in effect um, and uh, will remain in effect uh, until at least February 10th is what uh, 
uh, Governor Hochul has said, and could be extended. Numbers seem to be going down from the Omicron surge, but they are still so high compared to where we were just this last summer. Winter is still here. So please wear your mask indoors, get boosted, get vaccinated. And uh, if you're feeling ill, get tested. That's the only way that we're gonna get out of this is and get maybe a more normal summer and uh, uh, this year and hopefully start kicking this virus to the curb once and for all. Uh, so please do that, protect your neighbors and friends and protect yourself. Uh, thank you again for joining me on Zoom and Zarmi. Uh, next week, uh, my guest will be Christine Wood uh, of Public Citizen. We're gonna be talking about uh, the state of American democracy, which is something I, I'm, I'm kind of doing this month as we get uh, ready for the campaign season and uh, uh, and redistricting is uh, taking shape as we speak. I think they're they're voting today to approve the maps. So um, uh, you know, check our Facebook feeds and go to dustinsarney.com and you can subscribe and get updates. And it's always free. I never take any money for this. I don't make any money on it. Uh, I uh, I'm I'm just doing it as a public service as my outreach. Uh, as elections commissioner to make sure that the public is notified of all election news and uh, issues. So thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye.